This podcast is what it means to be young. It's Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss the ill-advised, unremembered, utterly forgotten, out-of-style, and out-of-fashion films of the past. I am your host, James Eldred, and joining me today, all the way from Quebec, is my fellow American in exile. Who's uh, this? Me. <laughs> it's me. Uh, yes, I. Hey, it's Eric Pope. Uh, I, it's true. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Maine slash Boston native, and I escaped to Quebec to get away from the last four years. <laughs> I am a Toledo, Ohio slash Pittsburgh native, and I escaped to Tokyo seven years ago because I saw the writing on the wall, man. I was ahead of the times. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> Pittsburgh. I, I, this movie has a very Pittsburgh vibe to me. I've never been to Pittsburgh, by the way. This is like stereotypes but oof, for some reason i feel i feel pittsburgh in the bones of this movie yeah this today we're going to be talking about streets of fire and it's funny you mentioned it has a pittsburgh vibe because the the first episode i recorded of this which as of our discussion has not aired is about flash dance and flash dance <laughs> was filmed in pittsburgh oh my gosh so i'm just a steel town girl on a saturday night <laughs> um okay and off to a great start but yeah Today, we're talking about Streets of Fire, the 1984 Water Hill bomb that killed many a career, but has become, we've kind of loved again as a cult classic. And uh, I wanted Eric on here. Uh, you, I wanted you on here specifically because 95% of our Twitter interactions seem to be based around the soundtrack to this film. <laughs> this, oh, it, it's, it's not exactly a musical, but... It it is a wash in music. This movie, yeah, it, it it's 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 so so. There's the scoring, which has you know we can talk about that on yeah, its we'll own. Get but just yeah. the soundtrack as well is power packed. It's so good uh, in a very specific way. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's so good if you like what it's it's putting out there, which I do. It's so good if you like three very if if you like very specific types of music. Yep. You know, it's it's so good. I have I in Pittsburgh, I used to go to a record store called Jerry's Records and he's uh probably in his mid 70s now. And whenever he would get a used copy of this, he'd put it on the shelf and just write The Blasters yes. on it because he loves that type of music. And then like I wanted it for the other music on there and I would tell him what I like and he's like, "You like that shit? Fine, whatever." <laughs> you know. But it it is a definite style. It's a strange, you know, it's all it's all over the place, I think, but it's great. But the movie, it's a very simple story. It's basically about a rock star, a a, a woman rock star who's kidnapped by a biker gang and her boy her old boyfriend is hired by her manager to go rescue her. And it the thing about the movie that 
it's right up front with it. It says uh, another time, but it's a rock and roll fable. It does not take place in reality. Which is obvious when you when you start watching. Like it's really it's weird because you know, it's got this grit to it. It's kind of a grit. Everything's wet. (laughs) (laughs) The entire town that this takes place in is wet. It's Uh, a moist movie. Yeah. It's a lot of shiny streets, uh, but it's like grimy. And then you sort of have this 50s pastiche over it. Yeah. Uh, It gives it a real unique flavor. It's a one of a kind style for sure. The story is is whatever. The story isn't really. It's it it's a it's a it, it's in service of what they want to show you, and it works fine for that. The real reason you watch this movie is because of the music and mm-hmm. the style, because it just oozes style. It's it like does, and it is beginning like, to end. To its credit, it is very well shot. I would say. Oh, it's a gorgeous movie. Uh, the movie was directed by uh, Walter Hill. Do you have it? And also co-written by Walter Hill. Have you watched any other Walter Hill movies, Eric? Oh, certainly. Uh, Especially like the 48 Hours films are like, those are probably his most well-known, but he, that's the thing that fascinates me. Like he was already kind of a, he was riding that peak, like like he was riding the up, up, upward trend to, to, you know, career like highs. And then he decided to do this. (laughs) <laughs> which apparently he, was a passion project for him yeah he so yeah walter hill born 1942 he uh started as a writer he wrote the getaway by sam peck and power which is a tremendous film if you like gritty nasty ass 70s movies and nice. awesome cars with steve mcqueen ali mcgraw great sally struthers in a banger of a role um <laughs> Just all-time great movie. And then he his directorial debut was uh, Hard Times, which is a Charles Bronson and I think James Coburn movie. It's about a street fighter played by Charles Bronson because what the hell else is he going to do? It's a great movie. It also, if you ever watch Hard Times and you think, these scenes look familiar, it's because Street Fighter 2 just took backgrounds from that movie and put them in the game. Like, <laughs> the... Uh, the Doc's stage, I forgot who that is in Street Fighter 2, and Zhang Heath's stage are like directly taken from hard times. Fantastic. And it won't, that's not the last time that Walter Hill has influenced Japanese media, and we'll get there. Um, <laughs> uh, and then he made The Driver, which is a great movie. Uh, and then in 79, he made The Warriors. Oh, Have you seen right. The Warriors? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe I forgot that. Yes. Warriors is amazing. Like that again, oozing with style and very oozing much style. a unique story, unique film. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, it's such a great movie, and it was probably one of my first favorite movies. Uh, I was watching that well before I should have, uh, because my dad, <laughs> as I will say on almost every episode of this podcast, my dad was a terrible censor. So <laughs> I, I saw Revenge of the Nerds when it first came out, which yeah. Is, no, don't watch that now. <laughs> if you like that movie, oh, that no. movie is canceled. Trust oh, me. no. Okay. Oh, yeah, I definitely haven't watched it in a good 20 years. Yeah, don't. Just don't. <laughs> anyway, uh, after, you know, he made, then after The Warriors, he made The Long Riders, which is a Western with David Carradine that I have not seen. And then he made Southern Comfort, which nobody has seen except me. And uh, <laughs> that is a very dark film. It's kind of like Deliverance. I'll just oh. leave it at that. Uh, it's not as nasty as Deliverance. But then, 1982, 48 Hours. 48 Hours, 
massive, huge, uber smash genre defining hit. Mm -hmm. Makes Eddie Murphy a superstar. Makes Nick Nolte look cool. It does amazing things. And it was such a huge hit that all all the studios were like, your next movie, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And he's like, I'm going to make Streets of Fire. And they're probably like, "Hey, cool! I like the I like the Springsteen song. You got the yeah. money. Go do it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He so he, he co-wrote the film with um, a man named Larry Gross. Not a huge, not a very prolific dude in movies. Uh, he wrote a movie before this called Heading for Broadway that I can find nothing about and I've never heard of. <laughs> he did some rewrites. He did a rewrite for First Blood and other stuff like that. And then he was one of the four writers on Forty Eight Hours because that was him, Walter Hill. Roger Spottiswood, who direct, who did Tomorrow Never Dies, and Stephen DeSouza, who directed, who, who wrote every '80s movie, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like Die Hard, all that shit. The movie also is kind of the brainchild of them, and also the producers, Lawrence Gordon, who started in the '70s. He produced Hard Times, uh, and he produced throughout the '80s all kinds of stuff. He produ- co-produced Forty Eight Hours, Jumpin' Jack Flash, The Predator. Uh, Rocketeer, Waterworld, Event Horizon, um, and even the Hellboy movies. So he's at 84, he's still around. And with him is Joel Silver, who there aren't many famous producers, but I'm going to say he's definitely up there. Yes. Yeah. He he started as Lawrence Gordon's assistant. His first movie, he's, he's an assistant on Hooper, which is a, a stuntman movie starring Burt Reynolds, which I just watched last week, and it's very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um but he he produced 48 hours you know he produced the 80s predator action jackson great movie die hard roadhouse lethal weapon then the matrix God. like he is he if he's not the richest person in hollywood i don't know who is so they they all kind of came together on this idea for a movie you are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before where rock and roll is king the only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful. Stand see the show, it's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. Eric, what's your relationship with this movie? When did you first see it? So I live a sad life where uh, <laughs> I have been on Twitter for a long time. I think since 2007. But that affords me some some fun times where I can just Google my name and phrases. <laughs> yeah, I do that too. I do that too. <laughs> and catch memories from the past. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out it was a uh, Mar- May 4th, 2013. Huh. I said, I'm going to watch streets of fire and think about what I've done. <laughs> I don't know what I have done that, that particular day, but uh, a follow up tweet immediately after was all caps. Rick Moranis, full closure, full disclosure. This is my first time seeing Streets of Fire. So yeah, 2013, I I remember. So uh, I'm good friends with a fellow who you know uh, named Alex Navarro. Oh yeah. He and I, uh, so he and I worked together directly for a couple of years at Harmonix on video games. And then he went back to the the writing side of world and he opened up a movie site and was nice enough to invite me to like write on that site. So we got to actually kind of do movie stuff together, almost like this that we're doing right now for a few, for a couple of years. It didn't last super long, but anyway, I'm quite sure he's the one that brought streets of fire into my life. 
because he's full of these types of like similar to you these forgotten <laughs> never never again uh to be made types of movies and it sounded fascinating uh and it is absolutely fascinating so that first time to be honest i did not even like it i don't think i knew what to expect yeah um, it's, yeah yeah uh so so rewatching it uh for this like like I, I liked you know all the aspects we talked about the way it looked the music and all that but like i didn't get the it didn't sit with me in the way that most kind of campy fun movies do. I was just like, Ugh. and a lot of it was because of Michael Perre. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about him in just a minute, but yeah, I think he is a weak spot in the film. Oh yes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but rewatching it uh, to prepare to, to chat with you about it. Uh, totally different story. Like all of the charm sunk into me. Uh, and like, I am fully in love with this terrible, ridiculous movie. <laughs> I, I would, I, I would not. It is ridiculous. I would not say it's terrible. I I very rarely, <laughs> I very rarely have what you would call a guilty pleasure or like uh-huh. a movie. Ironically, if, uh-huh. if if I enjoy a movie, I think it's good. Okay. Almost all very rare exceptions, like you know something like Manos would be an exception. Sure. But sure. Usually, if I enjoy him, like hey, Howard the Duck, I love that movie. I love it. <laughs> I own it. I own it on Blu-ray. I own a three CD soundtrack of it. Fantastic film. In you my you have opinion. no guilty pleasures. You just have pleasures. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, my guilty plus is cocaine. Just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny. I was looking on Twitter. You saw this movie before me. I, I think it must have gone on Netflix that year, I would yeah. imagine. And because this movie was a little hard to find, not super hard to find. It wasn't like a lost movie or anything. But I don't think it ever went for sale on VHS just for rent. And maybe way later it got like a, a, a wider release and the DVD didn't last that long. It wasn't in print that long. So it was kind of hard to find for a long time. I had the soundtrack well before I watched <laughs> the movie and then I saw it and it just blew my mind because I love the warriors. Yeah. I love stylish movies. That's going to be a recurring theme on this podcast. You can, I will take style over substance almost mm-hmm. any, when it comes to a movie because for me, a movie, usually when I'm watching a movie, I want to escape. So, like, I very rarely watch, like, serious dramas and stuff. I will. The, the boyfriend likes them. So, you know, I'll watch, <laughs> I'll watch, you know, Sense and Sensibility. It's a good movie. But, you know, give me something with some shit blowing up in it. I, I'm usually more down with that. And I watched it. I had no idea what it was really about other than the soundtrack. And it, it just, it kicked my ass. And I have... It's one of those movies that I I will if you're gonna be my friend you're gonna watch it. Uh, <laughs> I, you know I I live in I live in Tokyo and I'm an English teacher and the English teaching profession here has a lot of turnover because people come here for a little bit and then they go back home. So I have made a lot of friends here. When they come over, usually one of the first films we watch is either Streets of Fire or Purple Rain. Nice. And if you don't like either of those movies, and you can't be my friend, and, and, and <laughs> it's it's that that sounds so stupid, like high school bullshit. But like those movies for me are just so important that I they are a part of my life. But yeah, I would say, like you said, Michael Paré. Not yeah. So the cast of the movie, like he, the movie stars Michael Paré. Now, have you seen any other movie with Michael Paré? Not at all. He was in Eddie and the Cruisers. Okay. Which I have never seen. Another great soundtrack. Uh, but that's a Gary, that's Gary Rafferty, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that in the dark side, good song. But 
he is not a dynamic actor, I would say. say. You know, I would think, I think he could play a good heavy, I would imagine, you know. So watching it the second time, I was trying to get a sense for, is he just bad or is he trying? Because I do think he's trying to do like a, you know, like an archetypal kind of the silent but tough uh, handsome guy, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like I, I get the sense he's trying to pull that off, but it doesn't, mm. it just comes across as like this. He just seems like a dummy. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's not a lot to love about the character that he is embodying there. <laughs> yeah. He would be a good sidekick. Maybe, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, he's, he's like, he's like the tough dude who like, you, you just, you introduced me to the game Desperados three. Yeah. Uh, he's like Hector. <laughs> you know, he's just a big motherfucker you have around to break shit. And yep. he's good at breaking shit, but he's not going to, like, you know, talk to you. Like, you can't talk about philosophy with him. <laughs> you know, in his defense, he has often, in a polite way, criticized Walter Hill's direction hmm. for him. Because he felt he was never directed. Uh, Walter Hill's direction was, be a star. And he's like, it's my second movie, dude. Like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> so I... I it's a commanding role. It takes a lot. To, it's it's not an easy role, I think, to make interesting. And I kind of feel for him. Although he's almost never in good movies. He's in a ton of Uwe Boll movies. Really? Wow. I don't think for him acting is an art. I think it's a way to make money. Yeah. And he, which is fine. You know, like, I'm not going to criticize him as a person for being in Uwe Boll films. You know, get a paycheck. It's not like, it's not morally rehensible or anything, but it's not high art. But Every and I think another another weakness for him in this movie is every other actor is amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And well, and the other thing too, and I think the reason why personally I was a little disappointed with him because like he is in the lead in a time so nineteen eighty three eighty four when like those movies were defined by these these leads like these commanding leads in these movies whether it's Schwarzenegger or Stallone or you know like. That was kind of the, the the archetype of the time, and it's like he just doesn't get there. <laughs> or, or the first choice for this role, which was uh, Tom Cruise. Oh, for real? Who, who they who they they took on? Who he wanted to do it, and then I, he was offered another movie, and he took that instead. I think it was probably Risky Business, or, or oh. uh, yeah, but he he they just missed him. Like it was Can a casting imagine? thing, and they, they almost cast Eric Roberts. <laughs> that would have been good. I, I don't I they're like let's get who's okay so the bad guy in this is Willem Dafoe who's creepier I know <laughs> I don't know Eric is a strange actor for me but yeah the bad guy Raven great name is uh Willem Dafoe it's one of his first movies uh, he is amazing I would watch he's, a whole movie about this guy he's a greaser from hell <laughs> for a good portion of the movie <laughs> He's a greaser from hell who walks around in like chest high, uh, like hip waders, you know, like hey shiny black rubber. So, so we're going to kidnap this lady and then we're going to go fishing. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like what is, what is uh, his goal was there? It's a weird, it's a look. Um, well, to be clear, hip waders with no shirt, just like bare chested and then just almost three quarters body length black rubber. Well, you wanna you wanna show off that that you know that that pasty white physique. Yeah, you know? uh, I'm a very white man. Also, he's a. I'm not that. I'm not that. Like he's he's like Conan O'Brien. Like it's 
Oh, yeah. You know, and I guess with the all black, it's a good look. It makes him look kind of scary. That's true. Yeah. A girlfriend of one of the producers, I forgot which one, was uh, Catherine Bigelow. Oh, And nice. she had worked with him in a short film, and she recommended him. Nice. And then the heroine, the Ellen Aim, the kidnapped victim who does nothing, is uh, <laughs> played by uh, Diane Lane. Yeah. Who, who at this point was still incredibly young. I think she was 18 yeah, when this movie She came. turned 18 or 19 while filming the movie. I would imagine it was probably 19. They don't want to have a minor on the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she was only in Coppola movies like Rumblefish, stuff like that. She was She had broken through super early, but it was like a very early role for her. She plays the singer, although she does not sing. She is lip synced. Yeah. You know, they, they dub her voice in. She doesn't do much in the movie, unfortunately, but I think she's good in what she does. Yeah, she has very little to work with, but yeah. And, and even having to carry the the gravity of being like the, the beloved lead singer, because there are a, multiple scenes of her having to go through full a full song as a lead singer. Like, she does a yeah. good job as the, the, the front person, you know? Well, she vamps it good, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I loved her in uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which I've never seen. That. Oh, you yeah. should. It's super. It's really good. Um, where, again, she plays. I, I believe she was the singer, but it's like a, a punk band. OK, um, but it's it's a really cool kind of just down to earth movie about <laughs> about her. And she's even younger then. So I think she was like 16 at that point. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a lot of respect for Diane Lane. Uh, so I thought yeah. it was interesting that she's playing a lead singer again. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Rick Moranis, and he's oh, in this movie yes. too, playing very against type. That's very exactly what type. I was going to say. <laughs> he plays such an asshole. <laughs> he plays, well, you know, he's kind of an asshole in Ghostbusters, but he's, he's just because he's, he's, he's an oblivious idiot. He, uh-huh. He's a prick. He is like... Every every horror story you've heard about a 1950s 1960s producer, you know, yeah. except maybe Phil Spector, uh, he he's that character. He's a slimy little shithead who who wears ridiculous outfits, yep. and just treats everyone like garbage. Everyone. He's so good in it. He he's bringing a lot to the role. Apparently, Michael Paré did not like him. Uh, <laughs> there's a story I was reading. I found an interview on Ain't It Cool News, which, hey, it's the oh, website. Remember that? He's, I'm going to read this quote. It says, Rick Moranis drove me out of my mind. There's this whole type of insult comedy. Uh, in the real world, if someone insults you, you can smack them. You can't do that on a movie set. <laughs> but the first thing he says to me is, do you act cool? Are you really cool? <laughs> he also describes, this is, again, I'm quoting Michael Parra. This is not me. He says Rick Moranis is, quote, a weird-looking little guy who couldn't get laid in a whorehouse full of titties. Wow. Yeah. So not a – but then also he says, hey, but then he made a bunch of movies for Disney. I wasn't that sharp. So <laughs> I, at least he knows, you know, Rick Moranis did better than him. It's, it's, I, I would love to have, like, been a fly on the wall because I do – it probably because of those Disney movies, I do have such a – a vision of who Rick Moranis is in my head. And, and even like yeah. the modern Rick, Mor- you know, the story, right? Like he stopped acting because he wanted to take care of his kids and like be a yeah. good dad. And it's like, come on. He seems like the nicest dude. Yeah. And the fact that he gave Michael Perry so much shit that he holds it with him to this day is kind of amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, 
Also, then the movie, uh, Michael Parry's Co- Michael Parry plays Cody. Cody's sidekick in his rescue mission is McCoy, played by Amy Madigan, who I think most people probably know from Field of Dreams. Yep, she's she's the wife in that movie, I believe. She's one of those those like actresses who did a ton of things, and you would know her as soon as you saw her face. You might not know her name, but you're right. Field of Dreams, um, Uncle Buck is another one. Oh that- yeah, Duh, Uncle Buck. She's great yeah. in that too. Yeah, yeah. You don't get a lot of women character actors, but I feel she is one. Well, and again, I think I, I, I this her character for again for the time I actually felt was kind of unique, where they don't explicitly say but uh, you know it's like it's hinted to a few times that she's a lesbian and she's yeah just you know she's just like a normal person who happens to be a lesbian it's not like they make some jokes about it because you know 1983 but well <laughs> not, I, I it's interesting because the character was written as a man oh uh, really named martinez and it was gonna go to edward james almost uh oh, that's who they wanted for the role but she came in to audition for the sister role there's um uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg, who's in The Warriors, she plays Michael Parry's sister in the movie. But a- Amy Madigan is like, I don't like this character. I want to be, I want to be Martinez. And so they, they liked her. They changed the name. They changed the script a little bit. But the to be, I don't know if they intended on coding her as a lesbian, mm. but they totally do. Like Cody comes on to her once, and then she says, "You're not my type." Right. And then. At one point, she says she had a boyfriend, but that was, quote, before I was a soldier. Mm. I, yeah, okay, you were a soldier. This movie, in this movie, a lot of people seen, in the world of this film, a lot of people were in the military. Cody was in the military. McCoy was in the military. Like, again, again, the movie does not take place in reality. So mm-hmm. whatever type of military that is, we don't really know. But she was a soldier. She's a, she's a driver and a mechanic. And she is very butch. And I wish there were more characters like that in movies. Without yeah, like, yeah, totally. It's just a unique character. See, it brings a lot to the movie. And well, then, and especially for that time, because you know you could easily see maybe you get that character, but it's the butt of all of the jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Or so, yeah, yeah. I, 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 to me, McCoy was kind of the most interesting character of the whole movie. Yeah, see, yeah, she definitely is. And then in some minor roles, you get Bill Paxton yes. getting getting punched the. Shut up. Like he has two scenes in the movie, really. Like and he gets punched in the face in both of them. Like with a big greaser bouffant too. A big greaser bouffant. Like, <laughs> um Willem Afoe punches him and then he's given a- Amy Madigan shit. He's a bartender. She just punches him and takes a bottle of tequila and bails. Like he's just and that's all he really does. It's funny. And then also but Bill Paxton, I think he was in Joel Silva's wheelhouse because Bill Paxton has a really, really, really small part in commando. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you see, if you watch a lot of Joel Silva films, you see the same people, the guy from warriors who goes, warriors, that guy, he's <laughs> in commando. He's in 48 hours. He's in all these Joel Silva movies. And so you, you, you get in good with him and you, I guess you're good for a while. Well, and Catherine Bigelow, too, was the Paxson had a connection with her, too. Um, yeah, probably from Joel Silver. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, good connections get you, get you a lot in Hollywood. And then yep. another minor part, leaving. Leaving yes. from the band Fear. Uh, so, again, yes, this a personal is, favorite leave. of mine, a, like a hardcore band from New York City, like one of the original yeah. hardcore bands. Uh, they are famous for their song, <laughs> New York's All Right If You Like Saxophones, is what yeah. is. <laughs> 
And their other, their other uh, most famous is a uh, beef bologna. <laughs> it's a song I, would, about beef I would say the most famous is "I yeah. Live in a, Living in the City." Okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. But yeah, it's funny again. So, second, I, this is my second episode, second movie of Lee Ving because Lee Ving is also in Flashdance. He is. Oh, yes, he's the creepy, the creepy slit bar guy. And you know, it's not just because I just recorded about Flashdance. Uh, as I say in that episode, Flashdance defined the 80s. It is, you cannot overstate its influence. It was massive. And even in a movie like this, this movie was not going to be the type of musical it was until Flashdance came out. Well, and I did read that the, this is a tiny connection, but the dancer in the bar yeah. is the dance double for Jennifer Beals and Flashdance. Yeah, one of three or four dance doubles he had. Uh oh, there's a lot of that's, that's a whole. You should listen to the first episode. I <laughs> uh, so yeah, Flash Dance hits huge, and they're so like, okay, we got to make this a musical. And then John Hughes movies start getting huge, and they're like, okay, it has to be a teen movie too. And <laughs> Larry Gross, one of the writers, he he told the story in an interview. Uh, he said it was a 14 week shoot. And after about five weeks, I remember I turned to Walter and I said, this movie is somewhat weirder than we thought it would be. <laughs> and cause it's just like Walter Hill imagined a comic book movie without, without the comic book. That was his plan. He wanted to make, cause you got to think about the time. There were not many comic mm-hmm. book movies. I can totally see that. I can totally see that now that you've said it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was how it was written. The, and that's, was the plan and then the music and came in later and then the part of making it everyone so young came in later too i don't think no one in this movie's over 30 yeah like it's it's a bunch of kids and i i think that kind of helps the movie's kind of uh feeling because it's a movie about a bunch of bikers who kidnap a rock star but the whole thing is strangely pg yep it's yeah. true. And and even the violence is very like I don't recall much of any blood. There's no blood and nobody dies. Yeah. Yeah. There's explosions uh, and stuff, but yeah, no one's getting blown up. Yeah. It's just motorcycles getting shot and exploding or falling over and exploding. Yeah. <laughs> uh but like the 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 idea was that no one would die. So like he he says he's shooting the motorcycles and like, yeah, in the real world, if you shoot a motorcycle and it explodes, somebody would die. Yes. But in this movie, no. <laughs> and Amy Madigan suits one person, shoots him in the leg, doesn't kill him. So nobody dies. Like it's, it's, it's part of the movie's world because the yeah. movie has a very unique world. Like we already talked about it a little bit. It's, it's a bizarre amalgamation of, 50s rock culture and the 80s yes like so much neon all the neon like that was a deliberate choice like two of the production people who worked on it they're huge into neon designs and so like ellen ames stage is just decked out in neon all the time and yeah and her backup the rest of her band they're all greaser style guys like teddy boys almost yeah, yeah, they're all <laughs> greasers. And that's all neon. And there's a, a sequence in the middle of the movie where they're escaping the, the sequence to the song Sorcerer that's very Flashdance inspired. A lot of editing to, they edit the movie to the music, mm-hmm. um, which at the time was a new thing. And there's neon everywhere in that sequence. It's just wall to wall neon. It's crazy. To facilitate that, you know, they wanted everything, almost everything is at nighttime. 
And to make a movie like this at night, either you're shooting only when it's dark, which kills the crew. Like there's a story about uh, Back to the Future was filmed at night because Michael J. Fox was still making Family Ties. Oh, that's so right. <laughs> like everybody, nobody sleeps. You all go crazy. So they're like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just make a giant tarp. So they filmed it on a back lot, which to kind of, because they wanted to give it an intentional fake feeling. And then they put a giant tarp over this entire set. So like everything in the main neighborhood is a back lot. Everything um, <laughs> under a tarp or filmed at night. The The only scenes that are filmed in a real location are when they leave the neighborhood to go rescue her. And anytime you see a train. That's mostly filmed in Chicago. Like the the train is obviously Chicago. That's the L, and a few other places are in LA and around LA. But almost all of it is filmed under a tarp. Oh my god! <laughs> with with it's and apparently like they would have to have they'd had a shotgun with blanks in it to shoot to scare the pigeons away, uh, and all this like when you it's such a giant thing that it becomes its own problem you know and it was one of a few problems with the movie there was that there was um some of the problems with with michael Paré and, and walter hill not getting along and then of course the biggest problem with the movie was the name of the movie and why it's called that do you know why it's called streets of fire i don't does it have anything to do with with the springsteen song oh does it ever uh so <laughs> it really didn't have like Thematically, it does that does not have much in common with that with that uh song. But he named it that, and he put a originally a quote from the song was going to open the movie, and a, a orig- this was mostly just to get attention because Bruce was huge at the time, and they were going to close with instead of the song they close with, which we'll get to, they close they were going to close with Streets of Fire, huh. and they recorded it. They recorded a version of it. And they filmed it. They filmed an entire sequence oh of gosh. this band singing Streets of Fire. And then they found then um then they found out, oh, well, Bruce doesn't want you to do that. <laughs> well, shit. So they had they couldn't use that lo- that was a, an actual theater. They couldn't use the theater again. They had to rebuild the stage in a sound stage. Oh my god. They had to bring everyone back. Uh, if you look really carefully, you can tell that she has a wig on. Oh my god, <laughs> her hair is different. All that, all that stuff cost a million dollars. Wow. Yeah, and when you watch the, <laughs> yeah, when you watch the Blu-ray, they talk about it and they show footage of it. Oh, I would uh, love to see that. Oh, I would, I would love to see it, and more importantly, I would want to hear it. Yeah, like I want to hear. If if is it a Jim Steinman arrangement? If it's a Jim Steinman oh, arrangement, god, that could be so yeah. good. Yeah, that would be so good. Oh my god! So yeah, we haven't talked about Jim Steinman or, or the soundtrack. So yeah, Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman is one of two people who worked on the soundtrack to this. There was him and Jimmy. How do you say that man's last name? I say Iovine. Yeah, yeah. I kept saying Jimmy Levine, but that's the guy from Max Weinberg Seven. That's not the right person. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, well, let's let's first talk about Demi Iovine because he he actually has more to do with it uh, as a whole. 
He supervised the soundtrack. He produced a, three, a few songs on it. He wanted to produce a movie soundtrack because he thought, according to Dim Steinman, he's like, this is how you make a million dollars, right? You get the movies. <laughs> so let's do this. And uh, Dim Steinman's like, this movie looks bad. And he's like, oh, yeah, the script is garbage. Don't worry about it. It's going to look great. <laughs> um, so he, he produced it. He also he worked with Meatloaf a little bit um, in the 70s. After this, he formed Interscope Records. After that, he formed Beats by Dre. So I don't know. If Jim Iovine is working right now, he's an idiot. Hopefully, he just, he just <laughs> yeah. retired. He's doing fine. He's Streets doing just of fire fine. notwithstanding. <laughs> Streets of fire notwithstanding, yes. But the real – so, you know, he produced on the soundtrack, there's a song called Never Be You, um, which is a, a good kind of ballady type song. Who sings that? Um, Mariah McKee. That was a song written by Tom Petty. Oh, so Tom Petty's also involved? Or is it just, it's a just cover. a song that he, he wrote? Okay. He wrote it for Roseanne Cash. And then McKee was in a cowpunk group called Lone Justice. Okay. She, she, um, there's that song in Pulp Fiction that has the whistling in the beginning. That Yeah. That's her. Ah. Uh, yeah, who knew? And um, he produced the, the biggest hit from the soundtrack, I Can Dream About You, which I did not know was from this movie until I watched it. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah. And in the movie, it's sung by the band in the movie. There's like a duo, like a Motown style band in the movie. On the soundtrack, it's by Dan Hartman. Dan Hartman was kind of an underrated singer. He was in Edgar Winter's band. He co-wrote "Living in America." He was a cool guy. He passed away uh, from AIDS uh, way, 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 way too young. Mm. Um, but and then there's a few other good album cuts. You know, there's a there's a cover of uh, unreleased Stevie Nicks tune called "Sorcerer." That's a great song. Yep. Um, Great That's movie too. By, <laughs> well, hey, not to, yeah, my, not to spoil anything. <laughs> spoiler for another episode of this. That's by. It's funny because all these songs are supposed to be sung by Diane Lane's character, but they have different singers. This right. one is Marilyn Martin. Marilyn Martin sung a terrible song with Phil Collins, "Separate Lives" from the White Knight soundtrack. It's <laughs> a horrible song. It's her only hit. <laughs> I can't this say I'm familiar so, with that one. <laughs> it's a bad song. And there are a couple other like album cuts. There's a good uh, B-side by The Fix called Deeper and Deeper. Mm-hmm. Good song. But the real standouts here, I think, are The Blasters and the songs produced by Jim Steinman. I've been talking a lot. Who's Jim Steinman? So so while you were talking uh, about the actual the setting of the movie, actually, it really connected the dots for me. So Jim Steinman is the creator, I would almost say owner proprietor of the entire genre of music called Wagnerian rock or Wagnerian rock. Uh, Wagner. Um, (laughs) And the whole thing with Wagnerian rock is it's an amalgamation of like rock, like classic rock and roll kind of fifties, almost uh, doo-wop-y rockabilly-ish rock and roll with operatics like like 1800s style Wagner opera and yeah and it's, it, it is it's its own genre and he worked with a lot of really great people like he had a good run there between the 70s and 80s um no like I can't I don't know if anyone else has contributed to Wagnerian rock beha- besides him um I, yeah I, the only people I can think of are people are like when Meatloaf tries to do it without him right which is not yeah, nearly like, as good because Jim Simon wrote Bad Out of Hell. Yes. Yeah, and produced it and like which really put create like put it out there. You know, he did Total Eclipse of the Heart. He oh, did um 
um, oh, what is the other one by uh, by her? Um, it's just even out for a hero. Yes, which is my personal favorite. Like that is my get pumped song. <laughs> Holding out for hero is great. I'm a big fan of Total Clip to the Heart. Um yep. I you know that that song I feel like fell out of fashion and then came back, you know, and now it's but for me never. Yep. Like I I when there was the, there was a karaoke game for the PS2 and it I forgot which one it was and I was at a party and I was in a bad place mentally that year and that was I was like in my early twenties and that was one of the first days I got first times I got smashed drunk <laughs> and I got like beyond blitzed and all these people, all these shy theater majors who are like hugging the microphone and singing like this. And I, I grab it and I'm just like, every now and then I get a little bit, cause it's just my jam. I is, love that it song. It is probably the single best karaoke song that exists. It is. Like, it's a duet, so you can you can play up the theatrics with a friend, which is always yeah. great for karaoke. Um, but that's funny that you mentioned that it was Karaoke Revolution, which was okay. made by the company that I worked for. I thought uh, so. Harmonix. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, crazy. Yeah, and he also wrote um, Air Supplies, one good song, um, making love out of nothing at all. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Great, great song, and he wrote uh, "It's All Coming Back to Me Now." Um, yep. He wrote that for his own group, Pandora's Box, and that was later covered by Celine Dion, and she made it famous. And yep. every version of that song is awesome. I'm not a Celine Dion fan, but that song, oh. It's, it's true. I mean, like, he is, again, it's so unique. No one else has even tried to, uh, it, like, copy him. Yeah. And he, they're all just so strong. <laughs> like, they're, 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 they're bombastic, and they have, like, a... a just this, the sense of grandeur to them. Yeah, um, I yeah, I always yeah. described his music as where subtlety goes to die. Oh, absolutely. Like this, yeah, and he, I the one, I would say the one band who tried to copy him also worked with him, Sisters of Mercy. Sometimes, ah. even without him, they go there. But he co-wrote and he produced um, this Corrosion. Nice. And I have to imagine his collaborations were just like, okay, get a chorus and make it eight minutes long. And then add more hey now, hey now, now. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll take my check. I'll see you guys later. Like, because I love that song. Uh, so yeah, and he's yeah, he's great. I, I love Jim Steinman. He has two songs on here. He opens and closes the movie. What's the first song? Uh, Nowhere Fast. It, and it yeah. is, it is for my money as good as any of those other songs that we've mentioned. <laughs> It hits all of the same notes as to why I like his songs. Like it's a driving beat. It is uh, just bombastic. The lyrics are ridiculous. Um, the lyrics are great. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, actually, Meatloaf even covered it. Have you heard Meatloaf's absolutely terrible version of that song? Yeah, because I, 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 I looked it up. And I was like, oh, okay. So he covered it. I could see why he worked with Jim Steinman. So I started listening to it. I was like, is this even the same song? He, he changes the lyric. He cha- it's only the choruses. Yeah. He takes out all the verses and he puts in this terrible, like that. Dun, 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 this. It has the worst 80s keyboards. 80s meatloaf. It's a crime against humanity. And it's, <laughs> it's a shame. Uh, but like, I love like, the evocative lyrics. Like the first line is lying in your bed on a Saturday night. You're sweating buckets and it's not even hot. Mm-hmm. Like, it okay boom that's a message and and i like it has my favorite thing of any jim Simon song it's like there's the key change and you think it's over and they're like you're not yet motherfucker oh, we got no. another one and like it's just such a great song but for me the banger is the last song okay so you prefer the the the, the closer more than, than tonight the is what it means to be young These are credited to Fire Inc. Fire Inc. is not a band. It's just it's Jim Steinman's house group. The vocalists are Lori Sargent. Uh, what's the other one's name? Um, Holly Sherwood. Uh, Max Weinberg plays on these. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Bruce's keyboardist uh, Roy Batons also on here. Um, oh. Tonight is what it means to be young. Is the song he had to write. So after they couldn't get Streets of Fire. Jimmy Iovine is like, oh, I need a new song. And uh, Jim Simon's like, okay, give me two days. <laughs> and he wrote this in two days. This song is like, oh, oh, God. I, I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> it's just the best song. Um, you, you prefer the first one? I do. It, it it's, yeah. it's just, it, it's again, sort of like holding out for a hero. It just gets me really pumped up. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes are you ever in a sad mood and you want to hear a song that'll make you feel more sad oh uh, all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm a sad like, man. <laughs> so i i've noticed a, so like i i listened to bad hell for the first time front to back in probably like 10 years this week mm-hmm. and um bad hell and the song bad hell and this song I feel have a lot in common because they're both about meaningless sex, meaning everything. Mm. Like the, the first lyric of like the lyric that always sticks with me for this song is, uh, I don't see any angels in the city. I don't hear any Holy choir sing. And if I can't get an angel, I can still get a boy and a boy will be the next best thing. Um, and it's like, and it's just like nowhere fast is also kind of about like meaningless relationships, meaning yes. something. You know, and I, it's it's such a great theme. And uh, how do I touch upon this subject delicately? Because my mom listens to this podcast. Okay, so <laughs> when I first moved to Tokyo, I was depressed and single. And that lyric, if I can't get an angel, I can still get a boy. You know, that, uh, I'm not, 
That was a theme song, maybe. That was the theme of. to you in Tokyo for that first year, huh? That was themed to me in Dragon. <laughs> Dragon's a, a, a gay bar in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so moving on. I might edit that out of the podcast. Um, but uh, I, You've I gotta leave song. that in. That's that's gold. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll send my mom a different copy. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. I might actually do that. Anyway, so like. That song also has the same thing of Total Clips of the Heart. You think it's over. Like, guess what? Boom. We're going to keep yeah. going. And then it has that great line, let the revels begin. <laughs> let the fire be started. And if you watch the Blu-ray, it gets that wrong. Really? The subtitles. The subtitles say rebels, not revels. <laughs> Which I guess neither makes sense. I've never – I didn't know revelry could be a noun. Yeah. Yeah, it's the type of thing you'd hear in like a, a bad, a bad like a sword and sorcery film, <laughs> you know. Let the reverence exactly, begin. exactly. And then David Carradine comes out. <laughs> um, but there's the other. I think the other reason this movie has the soundtrack is known for three things. There's the score also, but yes. also there's the the firing the Jim Steinman songs and then the Blasters songs. Yeah, now, I don't know shit about the Blasters. Well, so uh, rockabilly is one of the subgenres that, for whatever reason, I love. <laughs> okay. You're uh, a ska guy, too. So I, I yeah, so they go hand in hand, and I don't know why <laughs> yeah. they go hand in hand, because they're very different. But, uh, yeah, so so there was actually kind of alongside. So so in the 70s, there was the ska revival. There was also yeah. a rockabilly revival. So you have bands oh, yeah. like the Cramps, uh, who are the probably the most well-known of that time. But the blasters the are right. Yeah, stray cats. Oh, you're right. The, yeah, stray cats <laughs> for sure were the most well known. They were much bigger yeah, than the cramps. Yeah. But um, and then you had the blasters as well, and um, they're they're a super solid like revival rockabilly band. They don't get into any of like the the psychobilly. They don't get into any of the okay. like, they don't get into any of like the kind of Halloweeny vampire looking stuff <laughs> that you'd expect from the cramps or any of the other. Um, yeah. They're pretty straightforward. Uh, but they're super good. They're super good. Yeah. Their singer is a great singer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd that they're in the film as much as they are, but I'm really glad that they are like it. it it's, they're like the house band at Willem Dafoe's gang gang bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, so, so yeah, in the movie, the movie's very, another in the multitude of ways, this movie is very strange is that wh whatever city they're in, it is distinctly divided. In yes. the different sectors, almost. Yep. With different cops and everything. The cops in uh, the the good guys' hometown, they're 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 hard asses, but they're more sympathetic towards Cody. Yeah. The cops in that sector, they're all corrupt, like and racist, corrupt <laughs> and racist. Why? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. And well, yeah. <laughs> um, also the bartender. Also the cop is the bartender from Forty Eight Hours. But um, <laughs> that's I, right. Yeah. And uh, so in the battery, like the the neighborhood where Raven is, it's a whole other vibe. And instead of Wagnerian rock neon heaven, it is this psychobilly freakout. No, yes. no relation to the song, psychobilly freakout. And that bar is just like, it's like your dream of the best rowdy bar in the world. Like it's what the bar in Roadhouse wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. The blasters playing those songs and that crazy dancer, like, yep. Uh, I forgot her name, but like I said, she's the real dancer in Flashdance, and she's right. an amazing dancer. She is, and but she's also super androgynous. Yep, and 
you see her dancing and she eventually gets mostly naked, but she's not for a good portion of it. Right. And um, I thought it was a man. I thought it was a guy in drag when I mm-hmm. first, which would be give which would give that situation a whole new level of like <laughs> something um, for sure. But it, it, it's <laughs> she's just dancing so frantically. Like I don't know how you can strip to um, one bad was it one one bad stud? Yes. Yeah. That song is so manic. It's like <laughs> trying to strip to maniac. Like I don't know how you could do it, but she pulls it off. She does. Pulls it off. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, um, nice, nice. Yeah, well played. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, the soundtrack, like this soundtrack, blows my mind. And what about the score? So, so yeah, so the score is what holds it all together, and it's not, it's not, it's not something you could just gloss over because it is, it is a lot, it is a lot of harmonica in your face. <laughs> Whenever, <laughs> like you're, you're in between these great musical sequences. And then you get a shot of Cody that's walking down the street smoldering, yeah, and you uh, got this like honking on Bobo stuff. Well, it's going for it. Kind of has that. Uh, like the movie's kind of a western, right? Yeah. In, oh, for in, sure. In, yeah. So it has a western vibe. But who who does this? Who who is the composer? Yeah, it's Ry Cooter. So like no yeah. no um, spring chicken himself. Like yeah, a, a well established artist by that time, as far as I recall. Like. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's good. It, it is just a whole lot of harmonica. <laughs> like, I think it's really impressive how it sometimes it'll bleed into the soundtrack. Like, yeah, the opening the opening score segues very good into Nowhere Fast. It's it's right. that's not easy, and um, it fits it really well. I was trying to find out more. Like, so the score has never been released anywhere. Like, oh really? It's not, and I was looking into it. I get a lot of conf- when you research old movies, you get a lot of conflicting information because people forget things. Um, one thing I read about the score was that it was it is Ry Carter or Coder, but most of it was unused music from Stroker Ace. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Unbelievable. I I equal parts hope that's true and not true. Yeah. Like I um <laughs> yeah. So yeah, fantastic soundtrack, amazing cast, amazing look, just you know, stylish as hell. Walter Hill's coming off the biggest hit of his life, one of the biggest movies of the early 80s, and this movie comes out and Lead Balloon. Big wet- Big wet fart just yeah. dies. <laughs> just dies immediately. Jim Steinman tells a story about seeing it with Jimmy uh, Jimmy Iovine, um, and like Jim Steinman was like, "Hey, this movie has a really bad script." And Jim Iovine and Joel Silver, the producer, like, "Ah, oh, no, don't. It doesn't matter. Like, it's gonna be. You know, we got the music and the style, and it's gonna look great. Don't worry about it." And Jim Steinman even tells the story of he knew Springsteen's manager at the time and he was in the office and he saw the script and he's like, what's that? I was like, Oh, this, what they want to use our song for this piece of crap. We're not going to give it to him. Um, <laughs> and then they watch the movie and Jimmy Iovine about 20 minutes in says, this movie is really shitty, isn't it? <laughs> and Jim Steinman's like, yeah, Jim Steinman thought it was going to be huge because he was working on footloose at the same time. And he imagined he thought footloose would bomb. And mm. Streets of Fire would be huge. But Streets of Fire was the opposite of huge. It opened June 1st, 1984. Um, opened the same week as Star Trek 3. 
probably the, the best odd number. The the best odd numbered Star Trek, right? Uh, I mean, it's better than five. Let's 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 say yes. <laughs> yeah. It's better than the uh, first one too. Oh yeah, and it's well five. Anyway, um, <laughs> so the movie cost uh, fifteen million dollars to make, w- went over budget. Uh, it only grossed eight million. It debuted at number five. It lost. So Star Trek Three was number one, made twenty five million. Number two that week was Temple of Doom in its third week. Oh my god! Number three was The Natural in its fourth week. Wow! And then number four was Breaking. Uh, <laughs> in its fifth week, breaking oh in its fifth week, outgrossed the opening week of Streets of Fire, and That's then behind rough. it, behind it was Romancing the Stone in its tenth week, and then the following week, two little films came out: Ghostbusters and Gremlins. Oh. And holy shit! Yeah, hey, you know what? That was it for that. Um, <laughs> so, you know. All the filmmakers, they have their theories about why it failed. Walter Hill says the studio wasn't behind it because the studio changed um, ownership, uh, leadership during production, which is always a bad sign for a movie. They think that Michael Parre heard it. I, I, I don't think you can blame him that much like because people wouldn't know that going in to see it. Right. And um, Larry thought, Larry Gross thought, you know, this is the guy who co-wrote First Blood. He thought it should have been bloodier. He was like, if this movie had more gore, it would have been better. <laughs> I mean, I could see a version of it that's super violent. That could that could be kind of fun. Yeah, maybe I don't know, but then like it would be it would have, clash with the music for sure. It would clash with the music, and like Cody's a tough guy, but he's not a monster. Yeah. So like if he 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 knows how to use a knife, but he never really uses it that much. If I met if they would have broken in there, like you know stealth video game style and slit everyone's throat and carried her out of there. I don't think it would have had the same feel, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it it bombed, it did really bad, uh, in America, but in Japan, it also did pretty bad, but people liked it. (laughs) Um, that's a kind of a, a a common story with story with this movie is that it was, it was, it bombed in America, but it did huge in Japan. It didn't do huge, here, here being Japan, because I'm in I'm in Japan. Right, right. Um it it opened and it made about 2.5 million, which is 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 decent for a movie, a, a smaller American film at that time. That's about five million now, you know. So it did okay, didn't do great. But um people here seem to really latch onto it. There's a movie magazine in Japan called Kinima Junpo. And uh, it was voted the best foreign language film by its readers. Wow. And the seventh best foreign language film by the staff. So <laughs> they liked it, you know. Um, I don't know why. You know, it, it, it's, I think, you know, living in Japan, I think when, when you look at things that become popular here that aren't popular, that like foreign properties that are more popular in Japan, a lot of them are style first or, um, in terms of music, musicianship first. Because, like, Mr. Big is huge here. For real? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Big? Mr. Big. <laughs> Not as much as they used to be, obviously. But, like, throughout the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s, they were huge here. They still sell out Budokan. They're huge. Wow. Because, well, Mr. Big, you know, not the best band, but they're all musical prodigies. Like, everyone in Mr. Big is a fantastic musician. Like, mm-hmm. um, 
you could look into it. I'm not just pulling out of my ass. And <laughs> you know, and um, progressive rock is much more popular here. And huh. progressive rock is the lyrics are you know like I love progressive rock. I have a podcast about it, but the lyrics are often nonsense. But they don't know that because they can't speak them. Right. So you get the the feeling of the feeling of yes is roundabout is more important than the lyrics and the musicianship is really important. So I think a lot of times that's what comes through here in Japan. Interesting. I could be talking out of my ass. I don't know. But why do you, do you have any idea? Do you think the movie just bombed because of bad timing? Well, actually I didn't know the context of the timing, but that had to be like, that's rough. That's really, (laughs) that's really bad. Like every one of those movies you listed is a huge, like classic. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, for Ghostbusters and Gremlins to come out a week after, oof, yeah. <laughs> how would you even compete? Uh, yeah. So, so f- to me, that would that's that seems the most straightforward reason. Like, yeah, I do think, I think it probably was a hard one to sell, right? Like, if you were the marketing department back then, like the the trailers, I I, I the trailers really hype the music, yeah. which I think is a good move, and yeah. they hype. The trailers, like the tagline was a rock and roll fable. So they're going in heavy on the, yo, this ain't reality. It's a, it's, it's crazy town. Yeah. Um, not the band. Um, but I don't know if that's what people were looking for. I mean, yeah, it's just bad luck. I think, and you know, maybe it didn't get promoted right. Maybe Walter Hill's right there. Maybe it, it, it was, it, they didn't promote it. Who knows? It's always strange to me looking at the movies that fail that yeah. become, cult hits later you know like you know flash dance to go back to flash dance that movie had no budget no stars no big names and it became a phenomenon the third yeah. highest grossing film of the year behind return of the jedi and tootsie <laughs> and it won an oscar for best song you know and why that and and it, and it defined the entire decade. Yeah. This movie also is bleeding with style, bleeding with original ideas, but none of it seemed to catch on. You know, it, it it's just and I think that's why now it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like a, a microcosm. You know, we viewers at the time. Sometimes when you look at an old movie, like going to Sorcerer, like Sorcerer, the William Freakin movie, that bombed when it came out. It bombed hard, but a lot of critics liked it. Right. Um. Nobody likes Fruits of Fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can understand an, a, a, a movie critic in 83, 84 not being into the Streets of Fire. Like, yeah. it's so off. It's so out of the ordinary, you know? It, it, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's and, easy to pick on. Like, the Paré thing is a good example. Like, <laughs> he's, he's real bad. And, like, it's really yeah, easy totally. to pick and, on like, that he, as a... As a as why the movie's not great, but it is. There's so much that is to love about it, you know. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Michael Paré. I really get big John Michael Vincent vibes from him. If you know who that is, John Michael <laughs> Vincent was the guy in Airwolf. Um, yes, who who ruined his career with drugs. Um, Michael Paré didn't do that, but like he, both he, of them, he ruined his career with Streets of Fire. <laughs> Damn, that's cold. Uh, but like both of them, I feel like I've, I've, <laughs> this sounds so strange. I've seen a lot of John Michael Vincent films. <laughs> um, uh, Cause he, he just shows up a lot. And, but my feeling when watching his movies that he, 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 he's a hard person to direct. 
And a movie like he's in a movie called White Line Fever. He's great in that movie. He's fantastic in it. He's in uh, Charles Bronson's The Mechanic, which is an amazing movie. But in a movie like Hooper or um, some other movies he's been in, he's just a he's just a fly on the wall. He does nothing, and he's just getting by on his good looks. And I feel like Michael Paré. I would love to see him in another movie but that's good. <laughs> uh, and they there just aren't many of them. Like. Like I said, the reviews weren't great. Ebert gave it three stars. He said it was interesting. All right. Um, he said he wanted more music in the movie. The Washington Post writer, Gary Arnold, uh, he said he, he hated the combination of the 50s and 80s. He hated it. <laughs> he absolutely hated it. And he said, Paré, repre- Paré presents a plowboy figure to the camera and reads his lines like a charmless sliced alone. <laughs> That's and really apt. That's probably true. Um, Janet Maslin, New York Times, she she claims that Walter Hill – she blames Walter Hill more. She says that the actors weren't directed. Um, and But she has some weird takes on it. She says that the music does more harm than good. Wow. Yeah. And you're, I'm sorry your opinion is wrong. Yeah, that's – Jesus. The weird – so she says the heroine – is a tempestuous singer who was kidnapped by a gang of raping, pillaging motorcycle heavies. And, like, that's just, like, there's no sexual, like, one of the things I like about the movie is how innocent it is in terms of, like, yeah, they kidnapped this woman, but they just want to hang out with her, really. <laughs> like, he, he that's kisses true. her. He ties, her to, he ties her to a bed, but there is no implied sexual assault. No, Willem Dafoe is much more interested in walking around in his in his hip waders and his shirt with his no shirt on, listening yeah. to rockabilly music than he, yeah. than he is in her. Yeah, and it's like I I she called the movie misogynist. I don't I think it's sexist. I mean that that character has nothing to do. Yeah, but I, I but there is McCoy, and I think that at least it's not a hateful movie like right. the be misogynist I, I definitely think it has like a lot of movies from the 80s has some issues but janet maslin i think man she had a bone to pick with walter hill Sounds um, like even later reviews weren't like didn't like it i found a review from entertainment weekly in 1996 that <laughs> called the movie quote a cockamamie idea i don't know if joe biden wrote this review and uh <laughs> Said, imagine Blade Runner meets Greece. I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, and it says they said the years have not been kind to it. Wow. Yeah, man. It it was nominated for a Razzie. Uh, the you know the yeah the, yep. the bad movie. Like Diane, Lane, Diane Lane was nominated for a Razzie, but you know, fuck the Razzies. The Razzies suck, um, especially back then. Like, I, I'm gonna I want to do an episode about some movies that were Razzie. Infamous, but the Razzies started because somebody, uh, a straight white guy, saw Xanadu and hated it. So, like, uh, I mean, that's not my, you know, you don't tell me Xanadu is a bad movie, you're a bastard. <laughs> um, so yeah, it died, but like, and then so, so one thing you haven't had a chance to, to mention is Walter Hill initially intended it to be a trilogy, yeah, that you know, he he mentions that a lot. He didn't write those movies, he had an idea. But those never came to pass, obviously. Um, did you know there is a sequel to this movie? Well, that's I, I wanted to ask. I, I have not uh, seen it, but I, I have you seen it? No. It's Albert 
Payun, whatever his name is, he directed Nemesis and 8,000 other terrible movies. And it's called Road to Hell, I think. <laughs> yes, um, it is. Did you watch the trailer? No, I haven't even seen the trailer. Oh, it looks like hot dog shit. It is just, it's all green screen. Like, it's <laughs> he's going for a Sin City vibe. Um, oh, no. But he does not have the budget, nor the imagination, nor the cinematographer to do that. And the only recurring, the only returning actor, I think, is Michael Paré. So whatever you want more of. And Deborah Van Valkenburg, for some reason. I, uh, I mean, sister. I feel bad for her because she's an underrated <laughs> actress. Yeah, she's um, really good. She's really good. But they use a body double to show, like, Ellen Ames scenes. And it's... It looked they they got a couple of Jim Steinman songs I think. Or he, yeah, I, was, I'm looking at the uh, the poster and it does say songs by Jim Steinman and Tony Ripperetti, whoever that is. Ripperetti, I don't know. <clears throat> Good last name. Um, <laughs> but no, that movie looks horrible. I don't even want like I I saw that trailer when it first dropped and I got angry. Like, but to be clear, because we haven't said it explicitly, it is. Like Michael Pere is playing a character named Cody, uh, yeah. and and Deborah Van Valkenburg is playing the, <laughs> the character named Sister. And yeah, like you said, there's there's the character of Ellen in this movie. It's called Ellen Dream, not Ellen Name. So like it's a <laughs> it's a sequel without being an official sequel, which is fascinating to me. It's an unofficial sequel, and I have to imagine there was no legal action, mostly because the studio's <laughs> like, why bother? Right. No one's see this piece of shit if we <laughs> if we if we go after them it'll make it worse for us yep so they just kind of let it go it look yeah it looks bad and the real sad thing from this also also is walter hill never recovered from this movie right like creatively speaking like he made bruce's millions when this came out you know, um so he hadn't been painted yet yeah he i like bruce's millions it's it's you know it, it's a good 80s comedy but like you pull up Walter Hill's post Brewster's Millions. Well, in fact, uh, so after I watched this in preparation for this podcast, I, I was like, oh, Red Heat. Red, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. For some reason, I've never been able to get through Red Heat. This mm-hmm. is Walter Hill follow-up. It's a 1988 Walter Hill. Yeah. So I was like, and it and Schwarzenegger <laughs> and Jim Belushi. Who I How cannot, is it? I've never seen it. I couldn't get through it again. Like wow. it's very bad. And that's one that he wrote and produced. So yeah. That's his baby. Yeah. So then he made like so. I want to go down the list. He made Crossroads, but he which he didn't write, which I heard is good. Um, he has a story credit on Aliens, but I cannot believe he did that much on that movie. No. Um, he directed Extreme Prejudice. Nobody cares about that movie. That's uh, Nick Nolte, Powers Booth. Michael Ironside, Rip Torn, Western. Oh, my God. I kind of want to see it. Yeah. Um, Red Heat, like you said. Johnny Handsome with with Mickey Rourke. Um, <sighs> Another 48 Hours, which is a – I that's a terrible movie. <laughs> and that was kind of a, a the worst of both worlds. You got Nadir, Walter Hill, and Nadir, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then – he 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 is he is credited as a writer and a producer on Alien Three, which you know whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stand by my idea that Alien Three is a good movie, but a terrible sequel to Aliens. Yeah. Um, I and then that. Tre- Trespass, which has um, that's the Bill pa- that's the Bill Paxton Ice Cube Ice T movie. 
Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I saw that in the theater on New Year's Eve. Oh my I God. Don't, <laughs> in 1992. I recalled liking it when I was 11 or 12. I have no memory of it. And then Geronimo, Wild Bill, Last Man Standing, Supernova, that was so bad he took his name off of it and they had to retire the Alan Smithy name. What? Um, undisputed and then i try i i was like i said watch a quote unquote new walter hill movie so i watched bullet to the head okay um, which is from 2012 that has stallone as an assassin and it has um oh yeah i definitely did not see that one on from fast and furious sun kang and Kristen slater and jason jason momoa um it's not terrible it has ideas um, it also has 12 producers, oh, which is no. usually a red flag. Um, Sun Kang is terribly miscast as uh, a, a hard-ass cop. Because that's Han from Fast and Furious. Like, no, <laughs> not. Stop it. That role was supposed to go to Thomas Jane, but they're like, no, we need an international cast. And so they put him in there. Jason Momoa is a hitman who wants to kill. It's a, it's, it's a mess of a movie. It has ideas. But it it falls apart, and then he made reassignment, which is the movie where <sighs> I'm reading the I'm reading the synopsis right now. Oh my god! Michelle uh, Rodriguez plays a hitman who's kidnapped by a rogue plastic surgeon played by Sigourney Weaver and forcibly transitioned to female. Oh my god! I I don't want to get into it. It's a whole other movie. All I want to say about that is I do want to see it because it sounds ridiculous. And I, from what I noticed, it didn't get a lot of controversy. A because nobody saw it, and B because it's so weird that like it's not you can't like. There's a lot of transphobic films out there. I don't yeah. know if you even call that transphobic. Like, yeah, I'd have to see it. I guess I have but to. That see is it. a hell of a concept. Oh my god. I feel yeah. So like. And you know he he gets a production credit on every Alien movie because he co he uh he produced Alien, and Ooh. he wrote part of the script. He's not credited, but anything in Alien with Ash being a robot, Walter Hill wrote that. Nice. Um, so he's credited on Covenant and Prometheus and the AVP movies and Resurrection, but he didn't do anything. I, I have to imagine that's like how John Peters got a paycheck for Star Is Born, the new one, but he didn't do it. He just he owns the name, so. They gave him that. But yeah, it's it's a bummer how it killed his career. I wish he had done more interesting things. I, I think the only place this movie has any influence is, is in Japan. So I don't know if you read my notes. How do you think this movie's influenced culture in Japan? What do you think? Uh, video games, I would say. Yeah, Cody. Where else do you hear Cody? Uh, what What is, is it? It's Final Fight. Final Fight. Okay, yeah, Final yeah, yeah. Fight. Cody is based on Cody. Uh, And there's a character in Final Fight who wears Raven's outfit, the all black overalls. Oh my God. Um, And like they have direct Capcom's official website has an interview with with somebody who worked on the the game. And they're like, yeah, we watch Streets of Fire. And (laughs) so that's an influence. And I would imagine Streets of Rage. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's that's where I was going. I figured Streets of Rage had some sort of uh, influence. Well, in Japan, that's called bare knuckle. But yeah. I would imagine, but like I said, it did it did better here. You see it pop up sometimes here. There was a uh, Gainax, the animation studio, um, who did I think Evangelion, right? They 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 
cite Streets of Fire as an influence. There's a there's an anime called Zillion. Zillion was a, a master system game. Um, in that anime, they join it. They start a band, and <laughs> they're like the last episode is Streets of Fire. Um, and then Bubblegum Crisis, which is a great anime. The first episode is the opening of that is Streets of Fire, shot for shot, like completely shot for shot remake. Wow. The song is very the song is as Jim Simon as J pop can get. <laughs> wow. No, uh, I've never I've never seen it. Now I need to. The first it's it's good. It's beautiful. It's it's, it's bubble air Japan, so they're just throwing money at stuff. Um and it looks great. It has a good soundtrack. It's fun. You can get the whole series pretty cheap. But and but it occasionally pops up here like Japanese TV series. On this Japanese TV series, there was a the theme song was a cover of Tonight is what it means to be young. By Megumi Shina. Now, my boyfriend tells me that that show was popular. She was not. But <laughs> I gave you a link to that. Did you listen to that? No, I didn't get a chance to. Oh, you got it. It's good. It's a good version. It's it's very it's pretty faithful. Um, th- there's a Japanese cover of uh, "Holding Out for a Hero." That's also pretty good. Um, there's a Japanese cover of a lot of the Footloose soundtrack. I don't know. <laughs> Beautiful. There's a cover of "Never." That just adds even more never. It's like half the song is never, 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 <laughs> never. It's pretty good. Um, but can you think of any other movie? Can you think of any other movie that is remotely like this? I really can't. I really can't. Like, there's plenty of musicals out there. Like, the comp- comparing Blade Runner and Grease and calling it the birth child of Blade Runner and Grease. I- Grease is a, like a full-on musical, you know? So like it it's half action movie, half musical, and it's it's yeah, I just can't it broke the mold. <laughs> and then they threw that broken mold away and never used it again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish there were more movies like that. And you know, synthwave music? Yeah. A lot of synthwave artists like this. There's a guy named Chris Yugigami, and he had a great quote. He said that Streets of Fire is synthwave because it is nostalgic for the 50s in the same way that synthwave is nostalgic for the 80s. <laughs> it's a nostalgia for a hyper-idealized version that never existed. Hell yeah. That's, and I think that that nails it. He it really nails it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the best way to put it, yeah. And another – oh, yeah. Well, there's one more, one more influence for this movie, The Proto-Man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the cover to that album, it's the Sweet Sophia poster. Right. Like, yeah. So they're totally and they're they're very they're Wagnerian. I think we found the yes, other band. You are right. Yeah. And I actually wanna say I wanna say I they've covered have they covered uh they, they covered total eclipse. They call they covered total eclipse of the heart. I know that. I um, swear I saw some video of them. <laughs> 
that wouldn't surprise me. If they covered it, I'll definitely if they cover that, I'll put a clip in here. You know? And you're right. I'm looking at the the album cover now. You're right. It's totally the exact same as the poster. Which the poster, by the way, is amazing. The poster's uh, great. Yeah, I would put that uh, on my wall. I used to have in America. I had the the album art on my wall. Um, Hell the yeah. Jap- it's one of the rare examples where the Japanese art is worse because the Japanese <laughs> art is just fire with Michael Pare kissing Diane Lane, and that's all it is. The, that kind of crazy looking like screen like silk screen woodcut print art on the American one is much better and if I could get a frame poster of that somewhere in Japan I would hang it on my wall next to my framed gauntlet poster with Clint Eastwood um, <laughs> bad movie. Uh, but yeah um, summing up any, anything else you want to say about this one do you think people should watch it obviously oh yeah like yeah it's it I think whether you're interested in the music, whether you're interested in 80s action movies, Walter Hill, like there's just so much there. And, and again, the cast too, and a lot of the folks are there before they were big. And so that's always like really interesting to see kind of the early roles of these people who become huge stars. We didn't even yeah. mention Robert Townsend is in it too. Hollywood oh, yeah. Shuffle and uh, Meteor Man and all that. Um, yeah, Robert Townsend's in it. The the I don't know how to say his name. McKelty Williamson. Michael T. Williamson, yeah. The Bubba Gump. Somewhere in this movie is Ed Bailey Jr. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. I actually tried to note, make a note to myself to bring him up because he is in such a weird role. He's just a random homeless guy that they run into. That's Ed Bailey Jr.? Yes. Holy shit. I had no idea that was Ed Bailey Jr. Good on. Wow. Yes. Go it's ahead. A, like go makeup department. That's a good job. <laughs> I I didn't. I had no idea that. That's man. I'm I'm a bad film student. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So yeah, it has. Let's not and all all people and a, a lot a lot of other people. It has a lot of hey, it's that guy type people in it. You know, like <laughs> I recognize the cops. I recognize a lot of the a lot of people in this movie. So yeah, the cast is fantastic. Aside from the movie. But, you know, what are you going to do? But, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think this is one you should definitely check out. It's Nowadays, it's very easy to find. You don't have to worry about It's on Amazon. You can buy a Blu-ray of it. Totally. You know, totally. Like, you, you got to go. You got to do it. Like, it's definitely not. You won't feel like you've wasted your time. Like, there are some movies where, you know, like I watched the newest Nicolas Cage movie, you know, that we could do a whole different podcast series on Nicolas Cage because I love you him so much. You talked to Alex about that. Yeah, I don't, want, exactly. I don't want to get in his wheelhouse. He and I have talked about that, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Willie's Wonderland is the new, and, and like, it was not, I watched it and I just felt like I wasted an hour and a half of my life. That is yeah, not, that's, that's not going to happen with this movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, this. the worst thing for me is a boring movie. And like I watched um, an, another trucker movie called Highballin' with uh, Highballin' with Jerry Reed and Peter Fonda, and it was an inept movie. It was a movie made super quick to cash in on Smokey and the Bandit. The action is terrible. Peter Fonda almost never rides a motorcycle. What the hell? It's <laughs> just, and I almost fell asleep. So like, that's why for me, if if. I don't when I, I don't have guilty pleasures really. If a movie entertained me, I recommend it. I think it's almost always a good movie, and this is a great movie. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is like it's so just so unique. Like you you owe it to yourself to check it out. Like if if you're 
if you've gotten to this point in this podcast, you've definitely, I think, earned yourself a viewing. Yeah, we avoided any like when I talked about Flashdance, I I pretty much spoiled the ending because who the hell cares? It's Flashdance. <laughs> if you don't know the ending, you can guess the ending about the dancer who wants to go to dance school. Guess what? She goes. You know, I don't. I don't. This, there's not much story to this, but it has some interesting ideas. I don't want to spoil the story. I don't want. We didn't even talk about the ending. People said just that that last fight. I don't want to say anything about it. The less you know about that fight, the happier you'll be when you watch it. It's true. Uh, Oh, it's so good. And yeah, just watch this movie. It's a great movie. I think you'll like it. But I think we should wrap it up. Eric, can you tell people where to find you on the internets? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Pope, M-R-P-O-P-E. Uh, I work in video games, but I mainly tweet. I shitpost a lot. So if that's you if, it. If, if you're into shitposting, hopefully uh, my account can provide that for you. What game are you working on? Are you are you associated with at this moment? Uh, so I've been working on a game called Hyperscape, and I'm moving over to uh, Rainbow Six Siege. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. yeah, man. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Lost Turntable, and I still have a website. I'm the one person left at LostTurntable.com. I'll be back soon with more weird old movies that people should watch. Thanks. That was professional as hell. <laughs> okay.